0: This is A Confused Heap of Facts, the podcast where we have a discussion about history with the faculty of the Department of Military History and the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, Department of Defense, or U.S. Government. co-host Dr. Angela Riotto. Welcome. Hi. And we're here today with Professor Dr. Jeff Babb. Welcome. Hi. It's good to be here. And we're going to talk about a topic of a lot of interest in current affairs, uh, and that is China's century of humiliation, as they term it. So if you first uh, explain to us what the Chinese mean by that term.
1: The century of humiliation is, is actually 110 years long. It starts in 1839 uh, with the first Opium War and ends in 1949 with the establishment of the People's Republic of China. In a speech um, commemorating the 100th anniversary of the founding of the Communist Party of China in July of 20, in July of 2021, Xi Jinping specifically brings up the century of humiliation. It, it is a centerpiece of the way China is conducting its foreign policy and how they're building internal nationalism. This idea that China was humiliated and that should never happen again feeds several of Xi Jinping's both domestic and foreign policy uh, agenda items. And so let me go through that, the 110 years of humiliation or the century of humiliation <laughs> and talk to why and how it's there. A, sl- a caveat It is when I first started studying China, it was it's all about the external factors that matter. And that's the John King Fairbank School that 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 was that has since passed. I think he died in 1992. the The new scholars, the, the scholarship that emerged in the even in the 70s and the 80s began to look at the internal problems of China, and that's why I say the Xi Jinping is using the hundred years of humiliation, which is China being humiliated by outside powers, to cover the internal issues because there's an argument out there that, that China's rise will be bounded not by what the United States or the regional countries do but bounded by the internal problems that China just is having a hard time solving and they're difficult problems uh, the last time I traveled to China which was about a decade ago um, it's pollution it's everywhere so every day the Chinese people wake up and you can argue that, that they they uh, they understand there are internal problems it's it's in the air around them every day now it also is <laughs> it also basically says it that those are the smells of industrialization there this there the smells of advancement Um and it's noise, it's water pollution, it's air pollution, it's all around them. There are significant internal problems. So this is a nice way to kind of steer away from that. So let me start with the, and walk through the key events that the Chinese see as important to understanding this century of humiliation. And it all starts actually decades before the first opium war it's something called McCartney mission, 1793. The Brits send a diplomatic mission to Beijing to attempt to open up China to normal trade. And the, there's all kinds of great stories about the Brits refused to kowtow to the emperor and the emperor refused to see him. And the great lines that are out there are like, there's nothing that the Western world has that China needs. We have everything that we need. But at the end of the day, we have to, that this mission fails.
0: So the idea in kind of the lead-up to this is China has kind of been a mercantilist power. They're looking to control trade um, and to trade inwardly. There's probably an element of xenophobia to it. So the colonizing powers are trying to break that. Right.
1: And at first they hesitate uh, because China is a huge, is a huge power, um, much more united than india so with the dutch east india company and the british east india company they have a model uh, a colonial model uh that they've used in uh in the other parts of of asia
0: right where they pair up with a a local power and kind of pick off the 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 weaker powers until they've asserted control it takes essentially 150 years for the british to do in india but you don't have that in china is what you're saying
1: right China, actually, it's never colonized. Right. It is certainly occupied, and they certainly have chunks of China that that are broken off into what are called the concessions. But arguably, the Chinese f- figure a way not to be colonized. So that's the first piece, if you're going to argue against the century of humiliation from the outside, to say, not so fast. Your humiliation wasn't anywhere near the humiliation of the other nations, the other colonized parts of Asia. Uh, Nevertheless, this 1792-93 McCartney mission fails and China refuses to open up and be a normal nation in terms of diplomatic missions. And so for the next about 40 years it goes along and they find ways around it. And the Chinese are very good at finding ways to do things that they probably should do and not lose face doing it. And so they had essentially a a port. Everything had to go through Canton, which is modern-day Guangzhou, which is up the Pearl River from what is from what's now Hong Kong, which at that time was a a, a rocky outcrop of small fishing villages. So, in 1839, the First Opium War begins. It it is a trade war. The chief trading good is opium. With the Brits, with control of what's now Pakistan, India, Burma, have got all kinds of opium. The Chinese don't need anything, according to them. And the Ch- so the Brits have nothing to trade. So what happens, They they find that within China, there's a proclivity to use opium. The Brits didn't introduce opium into China. Opium was in China; they just provided lots of it cheaper.
2: They didn't need it, but they wanted it.
1: They wanted, it. and absolutely. So the the war is about opium because the the emperor chooses a a, a leader, uh, um, a provincial uh, magistrate, and sends him down. Uh, Lee. To the shoe gets sent down there to end the opium trade he goes down there goes into the go downs the warehouses in in canton and they literally seize the opium and throw it into the pearl river and the tonnages of it is pretty amazing and and Will be even more amazing later. So, so this is
0: a, the, the equivalent of the Boston Tea Party, right? That's Where what we was think of say. the Boston Tea Party <laughs> as being this kind of fun lark, but it, we're talking the equivalent of modern billions of dollars worth of trade. It's, uh,
1: yes,
2: it's an opium party. It's an kind opium of a yes. a party. party.
1: Yes, um, and so I'm not saying that the Brits were essentially the Medellin drug cartel of their time, but it was it was close. <laughs> um, so the Tea Party is particularly. Unappropriate. <laughs> um, and so they, the battles begin down around Canton, but then make their way up the coast to the area around Shanghai, and actually will make their way all the way up the coast to what becomes the, da, the Daku forts, which will become prominent in two other major events: the Daku forts, Tianjin, and and Beijing. Uh, will also figure prominently in humiliation. So, is so
0: the Royal Navy involved by this point?
1: The the Royal Navy. Most of the forces will be British forces from India that can be moved there quite quickly. Which
0: is still a private company at this point.
1: Uh, that it's, one, I'd have to check. Yeah, on.
0: it's fifty nine after the rebellion when it becomes a. Uh, after the C yeah. So 57. this is technically a British private company doing this. Yes. With the the. I'm doing air quotes the support of the government
1: however back in England um, Palmerston and Gladstone I think Gladstone are arguing against each other that this trade should be illegal and I think Gladstone says to Palmerston that something to the effect this will go down in in history as um, as Britain's worst hour to, to butcher uh, Churchill uh, you know we will be seen you know as as providing this drug to the Chinese people and
0: yeah like you use the example of the medellin cartel it's a not inapt analogy
1: so uh, gets dumped into the sea and it's not opium it's it's the Queen's goods and so the Royal Navy and the army will become involved and here's another interesting thing we'll you know talk about face the the Brits have steamships the Chinese have junks wind powered junks they have old cannon and the Brits have rifled can they have a much more accurate systems and so the Brits will sail up pound away at the shore facilities sink dozens of, of Chinese junks and then they back off. So what gets reported from Canton up to Beijing is, although we have taken uh, significant losses, uh, we have won the battle the enemy has withdrawn. So back up in in Beijing, the, the emperor is hearing what he wants to hear. So that lasts for a while. And so th- because part, I guess partially because of that, you could argue the Brits have to then Go up the coast and do more things. So literally, when they're at Daku, they're a hundred miles from the from the throne. It's impossible to, for them not to see. They have. Um, they now all of a sudden you start to get uh, the idea that there needs to be some sort of concessions made here, and there needs to be some sort of negotiation. One can argue when you look at Chinese history, all their wars end in negotiation, which should be a A valuable look towards the future Mm -hmm. um, in that wars end in negotiation, not in annihilation always. and It's hard to annihilate either at that time 350 million people or 1.4 billion people.
2: So at the time in 1839, did the Chinese see it as humiliation or did they see that they were still superior and able to hold their own against the British? How was it understood at the time?
1: At the time, I would argue... Um they're they're stunned that that these foreign outsiders can do this. But part of the problem is the Qing dynasty starts in sixteen forty four, is one of the most powerful dynasties in Chinese history. The interesting thing is probably the two most powerful dynasties in Chinese history aren't Chinese. The Yuan dynasties, the Mongols, and the Qing Dynasty is the Manchus. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're a good Chinese, if you're a good Han Chinese, you're going to argue that the Ming Dynasty was where where the power really was. But, you know, welcome to the argument. Um, so the Qing Dynasty, beginning in 1796 with the White Lotus, which, where they take six years to down an internal revolt, is beginning, and they've had to man the entire periphery, is overextended, overstretched, and now the silver is leaving China to go to the Brits to pay for the opium. Their treasury's going down. So th- they can see things are not going to go well. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is both internal and external, and to a certain degree, their own fault where they are. And
2: they realize that. And
1: they, they realize need to it. adjust. They realize it. They need to adjust. That adjustment will not come, though, for a while. And I'll talk about where that comes. It's called the self-strengthening movement. Okay. And it will happen in, after the Second Opium War. Um, so they make a treaty. They don't tend to live up to their treaties. Um, but that treaty ceded, the Treaty of Nanking of 1842, ceded Hong Kong in perpetuity to the Brits. And so a humiliation. They they knew that was humiliating. But giving away a rock is no big deal. Mm-hmm. There's plenty of China that that will grow stuff and can be used, but Hong Kong is pretty worthless. Because they're not a seafaring power, the port doesn't matter much. And because they don't really want imports and exports, ports don't matter very much at all. So giving away the treaty ports is not that big a deal.
0: Which makes sense for a country that is massive and relatively inward-looking.
1: Yep. And during the Ming Dynasty, you have the Seven Voyages of Zheng He, and during the Ming Dynasty, the Chinese the Chinese naval fleet is the largest and most modern naval fleet on Earth. The trouble is, <laughs> the second emperor after that's formed um, beaches the fleet. Um, which gives you, the, this, this is another thing we can look at now when we talk about the Belt and Road Initiative. Is the Belt and Road Initiative the initiative of the Ming Dynasty? And if it starts to cause more problems or not make as much money or is not as not allowing the Chinese to be as influential overseas as they want to be, well, they just end it.
2: Because they've done it
3: before. They've done
1: it before. There's a model called um, the treasure fleets of the Ming dynasty. Mm -hmm. Um, So now we're we're at the end of this. The Treaty of Nanking is in place two very important ideas evolve out of this. Most favored nation. So the 1842 treaty gets followed by treaties being made by other nations to include the United States. In 1844, we have the Treaty of Wangsha that essentially gives us the same rights to trade with the Chinese as the Brits get. And the French and the Portuguese and others will we'll follow on. So what one foreign nation gets, they all get. And this, so that's an humiliation. And the other humiliation is um, extraterritoriality. Uh, if a British sailor does something wrong, ashore in China cannot be tried by Chinese law, which is probably a bigger loss of face than most favored nations. Those come out of the Treaty of Nanjing, as well as the territorial issues uh, about Hong Hong Kong and the four four initial treaty ports. So that goes along for a while, and now you get the big internal piece, which is uh, the Taiping Rebellion, where God, you know, Jesus Christ's younger brother, Hong Sui Chuan, uh, precipitates. Um, probably the worst internal revolt in Chinese history. And they talk about 20 to 30 million Chinese dying. And this is coterminous essentially with the United States Civil War. It's like uh, 1854 to 1864. Um, The genesis of Hong's religious, uh, because the Taipings is the, is the, uh the, the country of heavenly peace um, he gets a hold of of some Western religious tracts and reads them he fails the uh, the Chinese exams very which are very important for him to be able to go up personally supposedly he has some sort of nervous breakdown and when he wakes up he believes he's Jesus Christ's younger brother. And fought, gets a, a group around him, um, which includes some. And it's, this is mostly in southern China, in Guangzhou, Guangxi province. Um, they they form this small group, and the the Ming the Qing dynasty is unable to put it down. And part of it part of it is the the Qing dynasty doesn't want. Han soldiers they want Manchurian soldiers but there's the Ming bannermen uh, I'm sorry the Qing bannermen the Manchurians and then the army of the green standard they want to keep a weak dispersed Han army so that it can't come together so it's got these small regional packets well the problem is Hong Sui Chen's army Hong Sui Chuan's army grows so they can beat these small packets mm-hmm. and so they begin, and then as they do this, this ferment against the Qing, Manchus, from the Han Chinese grows. And so you have this very, very strange movement called the Taiping. Sounds and like
2: a civil war almost. It
1: is a civil war. And, and he makes it all the way to Nanjing and puts his capital at Nanjing, which is the old Ming capital, and then mounts an offensive to Beijing. That almost succeeds. Part of the problem is, off in Shanghai are all the foreigners. And at first, the foreigners are going, this is great. A Chinese Christian. And then they hear what he says. Mm -hmm. He goes, no, this is (laughs) not going to work. And so, there are a couple of senior Chinese officials in and around the Shanghai area that actually began uh, to use foreign mercenaries to protect uh, Shanghai. And one of those is an American, Frederick Townsend Ward, uh, the Devil Soldier. So Frederick Townsend Ward puts together a group of Chinese and Filipinos, a few other Americans, and they put together what will become the ever-victorious Army. This is a, this is a, this is a mercenary from, from Massachusetts. Supposedly, he's taken part in some small battles down in Latin America, and then he's a itinerant s- mate on ships.
0: So I was about to say, he sounds a whole lot like a filibuster. Uh,
1: uh, well, um, he's he's essentially a mercenary. Mm-hmm. So he goes over, and I think it's Lee Hong Jong that he that he uh, talks to, and Lee Hong Jong says, "Yep." Uh, form a uh, group to protect. they make him a Chinese general he marries a Chinese, a young Chinese lady and then unfortunately for him he gets mortally wounded in combat and this whole idea looks pretty good because a British captain army captain, engineer captain that, that will eventually die in, in Sudan a guy named Gordon of Khartoum or Chinese Gordon is a Brit- he takes over the ever victorious army after the death of Frederick Townsend Ward.
2: These names are amazing, by the way.
1: Yeah, these are they are amazing. Um, th- this whole story gets so um, he almost takes over China, and millions of Chinese die. It is finally put down by both foreign entanglements. And we begin to build a better army based on this. So I think an argument can be made that the warlord armies of the future are born here. Because up in Beijing, they're really oblivious or near oblivious. Um,
2: So Dr. Rapp, who are the villains of this story? So if we're talking about the century of humiliation, (laughs) is it the Chinese who started the rebellion? Or is it the foreigners who helped to crush the rebellion? Who are the villains in current Chinese history of the story.
1: The the villains in this one are the foreigners. So it's a foreign ideology, religion, mm-hmm. that that builds the Taiping. It's foreigners that support the Taiping. And the harsh part of that is, well, what about these Chinese magistrates? Mm-hmm. Well, they're Qing. Mm-hmm. They're Manchus. Um, they're not true Chinese. Huh, they're not Chinese? true Han Chinese. So it's easy to...
2: So the narrative has kind of been rewritten to yeah. support the century of humiliation. Yeah.
1: So when it's in to their advantage, the Yuan dynasty and the Qing dynasty are Chinese dynasties. When it's not to their advantage, they're dynasties that are run by foreigners. So you're able, they play both sides against the middle. Very yin and yang. It's convenient. Very convenient. Works, works wonderfully.
0: And for comparison for our audience, the... The number of people who die in the Taiping Rebellion is equivalent to, like, the Eastern Front in World War II. We're talking a massive number of people. Yeah.
1: Between 20 and 30 million yeah. die, which is... In, a, like,
2: about 10 years. It's, yeah, it's 10 significant. Years.
1: It is a significant number. Um, so, from, so now we're and in the middle of this. There's the Second Opium War. So while the Taiping Rebellion is going on, between, like, 19... 1856 and 1860 there's a war against the foreigners mostly the British and the French but we're standing by always ready to help because we're making a lot of money shipping opium and other stuff um, I believe the first US trading ship to go to China is in 1784 and it is the you basically the Empress of China taking ginseng route from a port in, I think, New York to uh, to to China, so we're we are we are just hiding behind the British skirts, shipping into shipping into China, and making money. the 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 Franklin Delano Roosevelt family's money comes from partially at least from from trade with China. <laughs> so the clipper ships from New England are are doing great. Plus, we get the whalers out there, and so we, and we begin our, so in 18, it's if you say that the, the Taiping Rebellion is, goes 1854 to 1864, the United States opens up Japan in 1854. We buy um, Alaska in 1867, so this is the period where the United States is expanding uh, into, the, into the
0: region. Becoming a Pacific power. We are becoming the Pacific power. And it's also the time when we're connecting the East Coast to the West Coast with railroads.
1: Yep, same time. And so all this, that this is working. And, and this will lead into, if we go to the next battle, after this, 20 years later, the French and the Chinese uh, basically have a fight over who controls Vietnam. And the Chinese lose again, humiliatingly although less humiliatingly than before their ground battles against the french are, are are very close but back in the 1870s the chinese will begin something called the self-strengthening movement they will see that they are not strong enough with the right sets of military equipment in terms of technology to fight their external enemies or to take care of their internal enemies mm-hmm. So they will begin to build arsenals that will build artillery, rifles. I think Remington Arms has a factory there. Uh, and the Brits and the French will help them build ships. The trouble is, it's like we teach here. If you're going to have a military revolution, that's wonderful. But it's not about technology. It's about all the other stuff. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's about the political, the social, the economic. So they think they can just buy this technology and that's enough. They don't do all the other dip, uh, doctrinal, organizational, manning, training, educating. All that stuff doesn't go on. They just buy the technology. And therefore, when they fight the French in 1884-85, in the French essentially destroy their southern fleet, which they've helped them build. So they know where it is, and it's in Taiwan and Fuzhou. There's a northern fleet and a southern fleet. The northern fleet, the Bayang fleet, refuses to f- come down and help them. Why? That's yeah, a southern thing. There's two Chinas. There's China below yeah, the Yangtze so and a, China above the Yangtze. An
2: ununited united China. Yeah. So when we talk about the external versus internal, yeah. they're still not solving their internal problems.
1: And um, warlords are risk-averse. If I have to fight, I will lose equipment. I will lose manpower. It will cost me money. So the thing that we have a hard time coming to grips with is warlords are risk averse, and and we tend to want to fight them, and they tend to want to not fight until it is absolutely a necessity for them. So the Bayong fleet stays up north, um, and and this fleet. So this is this is 1884 humiliation in that their fleet they've spent. A huge amount of money on is now essentially destroyed, and so or half of the Chinese fleet is destroyed. The next one will be. Now we open up Japan in 1854, and then in 1868 you get the Meiji Restoration, the Meiji Revolution, Uh, and strangely enough, it works. They build a powerful military. And they have French advisors, they have German advisors, and they will build a very, very powerful army and a very powerful navy. And they will attempt to expand. So in 8, they notice the Frank, the weakness, and so the Japanese will covet Taiwan from that period of time, and then they'll get their opportunity in 8, 1894, 1895 Korea and the Korean they're listening to this is not going to like this it is essentially a vassal state of China mm-hmm. it is under Chinese ages if not suzerainty it's not under Chinese sovereignty suzerainty ages and so the king of, of Korea asked the Chinese for help except the Chinese and the Japanese have a treaty that basically says they will consult with each other before they go do anything. And then, then the story just gets better and better about who doesn't tell who and who's lying to who. But the Japanese essentially take offense to the Chinese attempts to uh, help the king of Korea. And so they go after the Chinese and defeat them at sea and on land in Korea, in Manchuria, and on the Shandong Peninsula. This is Canada attacks the United States and wins. How can this small nation Japan with its small population defeat the Chinese so convincingly? Mm-hmm. So you can argue that this is the very very low ebb of the Qing dynasty. It it is no longer able to maintain the the periphery it's losing not only now to western powers it's losing to a lesser asian power Mm -hmm. and it's losing more territory because it loses all of korea and manchuria and this will start that long peace the most hated nation for china isn't the united states it's japan and who's the united states greatest ally in asia today japan so, when you're the ally of the most hated nation, um, welcome to uh, guilt by association.
2: Yeah, so we've had two opium wars. Yep. Taiping Rebellion, and now the Sino-Japanese War. The Sino-Japanese War, is that like the camel that breaks, or the straw that breaks the camel's back? Um,
1: no, but it gets the camel down on, it, its front knees are buckled. Okay. Um, and it, it is just done. It is absolutely a stunt. Everybody in the world, as I understand it, thought the Chinese will win. Mm-hmm. And they didn't.
0: Never. Well, and not only that, we've now severed uh, China proper from its ancestral ruling homeland in Manchuria.
1: I mean, the Qing... For the Qing Dynasty. The Qing Dynasty. Right. Right. The, the, the homeland of China is the land between the Yellow and the Yangtze River. So when... No, that's not kind of the graduate school question draw a map of China <laughs> um, describe its boundaries
0: And this this is a problem now for the rulers who can uh, you know they've certainly lost a claim to legitimacy if they can't hold on to their own homeland right And
1: and with the Second Opium War and the treaties that come from that, one of those treaties is with the Russians. The Russians have had a series of treaties where they've encroached on China but this treaty, gives them, essentially, what's Vladivostok in that area. So, sooner or later, Russia and China are going to have to go to war.
0: So we're now pushing into the 20th century.
1: Right. And and that begins with this wonderful eight-nation invasion of China, the Boxer Rebellion. What will be 25,000 foreign troops will defeat hundreds of thousands of boxers, and 120 to 150,000 Imperial troops. And you have to ask yourself, how does this happen? Not hard to beat the boxers. They're, they're, They're not, they're mobs. That's defeating mobs. So you have to ask yourself, well, there's an Imperial army now that should be better and has got some decent leadership, Yuan Shikai, and some others. Well, first of all, the armies down south, the ones we said, hey, I don't help, you didn't help me, I'm not helping you. They don't come north, so the southern warlords, and they're not warlords at this time; they're they're the provincial leadership uh, of the south. They, they're not going to go north, um, the, and within Beijing, the factions there want to think they can take on the foreigners and win, or no, it's just going to bring more, just more of them,
0: so which is true. Who are the Boxers?
1: the The Boxers are um, a religious. You can't say cult these days, but if you could say cult, they would be a cult. Um, Leaderless, um, and they are unemployed, destitute youth with nowhere to go. And so religious leaders, and especially in China, religion is fused with martial arts, wushu. So these guys will bring the youth in by promising them that they will teach them the martial arts, and if they believe properly, they will not be able to be injured by cutting weapons and even bullets. So, these, but there's no organization. You can't find. Here's the leader of the boxers. Here's the leader of the church or the, or the the, the temple. They're, it's just a, it's a mass movement that comes up.
2: Are they Han organically.
1: Chinese? Organically, yes, they're Han Chinese, and again, mostly youth. And again, there's, there's, there's famine, and there have been floods. I mean, it is, it is a mess. Part of this is this argument that goes on within the China scholar community of what's the population of China and what can it afford or you know, how can it grow so fast and how can it maintain itself. But at this time, there's just tremendous numbers of unemployed youth mm-hmm. with nothing to do... And they get gathered into the boxers,
0: which is kind of the story of the 19th century in a lot of places. Unemployed urban youth. Unemployed, yes.
1: <laughs> and they were certainly there. So, um, the Empress the Empress Dowager uh, she, who's to let to say nicely a real piece of work. Uh, she starts out life as one of the one of the concubines, and she is uh, shrewd politically. Uh, Astute, and she will become the ruler of China in the in the late by the by the late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds, and she's conflicted. She knows that China needs to modernize, but how do you modernize and maintain your Chineseness, which is pretty hard for a lady who's a Qing. (laughs) Which I mean, there's all that's part part of that. There's plenty of holes in this story that you can go into um but the but the Qing adopted the chinese methods of of maintaining a political peace that it's the economic piece that they're really not adapting to and part of that is the railroads and the mines and the steamship companies and the money to make those work all come out of the west because china doesn't have any money left because it's spent spent it on opium to make it a very simplistic look at it um and the agriculture is barely feeding the nation there's no export of what they could be able to export and they're not they're not industrial all this industrial has to come in and so the westerners are doing a great job of charging the chinese for building stuff that they're making the profits on Mm -hmm. and again it's a little bit more complicated to that there's this guy named hart uh who helps the chinese come up with a you know, the, the taxation and tariffs and all that to try, to try to help this. But at the end of the day, uh, the Chinese ha- have something called the Tsung they that they put together to try to manage the foreigners. So there's an argument to be made that the Chinese, if you compare China to India, they manage the foreigners better. But these outbreaks of violent activity mm-hmm. that get thrown into it, internal, the mm-hmm. Taipings and the Boxers, and then, how does the foreigner, how does the Qing dynasty deal with that? Well, the Empress Dowager declares war on the foreigners. She declares that when, the, that when the forces come ashore at the Daku forts to begin to rescue the legations in Beijing, that that's a foreign invasion, and she basically declares war on the foreigners. There are several of her advisors who tell her, we're in for it now. We have not yet seen the power of the foreign armies and we are not going to be able to deal with it and so what starts out is about twenty five thousand headed for uh beijing there's another f- another twenty five or thirty thousand behind it so there'll be fifty thousand plus foreigners that will take and hold beijing
2: are these professional foreign oh armies? yeah
1: to include our um ninth and fifteenth yeah uh 19th 14th and 15th infantry regiments are the key and they're coming out of the United States and they're coming out of the Philippines because the peace that's not part of the humiliation was the humiliation that we did on the Philippines and the mm-hmm. Spain so We are now European power 1898 to 1902 Roosevelt Teddy Roosevelt declares victory in 1902. We keep slogging away at it, but at the end of the day we declare victory we bought it from the Spanish. It's now our colony. And so, we now
0: have territory close to China in, in the Philippines and Guam
1: yep. and a few others. So that the the situation that we see today with the making Guam into a bastion defense and trying to figure out how we can get with the new Marcos and change the situation in the Philippines goes all the way back to 1898. Mm-hmm. And it's in its forebears so now we have we are a power the Japanese are now a power the Russians are now in the far east from that treaty and the Beijing convention of 1860 the Russians are out there and now the main event is the Russians versus the Japanese
0: so before we get to the Russo-Japanese war we've got this foreign army that seizes Beijing how does this boxer rebellion end
1: not well for the Empress Dowager. She uh, dresses up like a, uh, a peasant and sneaks out of town with her entourage. And she will go out to Xi'an, which is a problem for us because we, won't, we who do we negotiate with? Mm-hmm. And so the negotiations for um, the Boxer Rebellion go on to, I think, September of 1901. Wow. At which time we will charge the Chinese... Uh, we, the Allied powers, the eight Allied powers, will essentially send a bill to the Chinese for the war. They have to pay for their own defeat. The, that doxer indemnity that comes to the United States, we repatriate half of that to the Chinese for scholarships for Chinese students to come to the United States. And this becomes part of, I would argue, the myth of American exceptionalism in China, that we're different than those other powers. We would argue that we never had a foreign concession, but we did run Tianjin. The United States Army was the occupying power for Tianjin, and we ran Tianjin. The Japanese were the occupying power for Beijing, and they ran Beijing. And then the indemnities that happened, and then the also that came out of that is the Chinese could no longer, there was a period of time where they couldn't buy any foreign weapons. So they just kept getting weaker and weaker.
2: Talk about uh, humiliation. Well, yes. on top
0: of that, this is the era in the United States of the Chinese Exclusion Act.
1: Yes. All of, all of those pieces fit, fit into that very well.
0: Okay, so we're now in the early 20th century, and Japan and Russia are now going to fight a war for essentially the, the hegemony of the, the North uh, East Pacific.
1: not only the sea, North Pacific, but the rail lines in Manchuria, the Far East Railway. And there's a spur of that railway that comes down through and goes out, goes out through um, Dalian, the Port of Dalian or Port Arthur. This gets In the Treaty of, the Treaty of Shimonoseki that ended the first uh, Sino-Japanese War, uh, the Laodong Peninsula gets ceded to Japan. But France, Germany, and Russia say, no, no, you can't do that. Because Russia really wants a warm water port, which Dalian is, or Port Arthur is, and Vladivostok isn't. So that's a no-go. So World War II begins in 1895 (laughs) when the Japanese figure out "Mm, they ain't ever going to get treated as equals. Mm -hmm. Um, And arguably... um, at the end of the Russo-Japanese War is when the United States Navy will figure war with Japan is imminent. Not imminent, but ev- but it will eventually happen. So we will begin what becomes uh, Plan Orange. And, and I think the first iteration of that is 1907.
0: So the, the, the Japanese have now defeated and arguably humiliated the Chinese and by 1905 they've done the same to the Russians. Yep. So where does that put China now? Uh, in
1: 1911... Um, it's revolution, and the revolution is incomplete. Um, it is less of a revolution than a collapse,
0: mm. which is not uncharacteristic of the end of Chinese dynasties, if I remember correctly. No,
1: normally followed by a, a, a period of internecine warfare while it sorts itself out, and and a new emperor eventually emerges.
2: But this time it's not just limited to their region. Now we have many other western powers also involved.
1: It absolutely and utterly complicates everything. So Sun Yat-sen, a medical doctor from southern China who actually w- went to high school in Hawaii at Iliani High School, um, becomes for a very short period of time in 1911 the new head of China. But Yuan Shikai, the old Beiyang army chief, uh, not to be confused with the Beiyang navy, but it's more powerful. (laughs) The northern army chief, you know, goes up puts his hand around Sun and says, you know what, show me your army. (laughs) And Sun says, "Uh, okay. So Sun Yat-sen, generally seen as the first and major warlord becomes the guy in charge and the Japanese immediately start putting pressure. And so you'll get the 21 demands, and Yuan Shikai will die during the first, while the First World War is going on, and it just, it, it goes into chaos again. Um, there is a leader in Beijing that the, that is seen, but the rest of China does is not really following them. Um, and so you have the 1919 movement, after World War 1. So at the Treaty of Versailles, the Jap the Chinese have joined the Allies. The Koreans, the Chinese and others expect that at the Treaty of Versailles their sovereign rights will be restored.
0: And by this point Korea is a, is a colony of Japan, correct? 1910.
1: 1910, yeah. But essentially from 1898 right. from 1895 on, it's under their control. Officially right. becomes a colony in 1910.
0: Right. And so like many places, um, they are disappointed with the peace settlement at Versailles.
1: Uh, that would be a mild understatement, <laughs> disappointed. And so the, the, the students get out in the streets, and it's the students that, you know, one people go, why was Tiananmen Square, Tiananmen Square? Well, because the Chinese are scared to death of the students mm-hmm. because of the 1919 movement. And 89 was the 70th anniversary of the May 4th movement. Um, so in the May 4th movement... The target is Japan mm-hmm. the Japan had defeated the Germans uh, in 1914 in the German concession Qingdao and so they wanted that back at least they wanted a change to Manchuria not it just gets worse not better but um, so the Treaty of Versailles in 1919 uh, leads to great ferment in China politically but nothing really militarily because they're just divided. Mm-hmm. So the warlords emerge and they are of every different type of flavor and kind, generally regional. Mm-hmm. And one of the regional warlords is a guy named Zhang Zuolin. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, Zhang Zuolin. Whose son, Zhang Zue Liang, will pop up in 1936 mm-hmm. uh, for us. But Zhang Zuolin is essentially assassinated by the Japanese as they are taking over Manchuria. They have been in Manchuria since 1895 and really have been at war with the Russians for control of the railways. And that that's still going on. It's never really complete. Um, and the Chinese are powerless to do anything about it. So war is taking place in their territory that they can do nothing about.
2: Yeah, so Dr. Brown, when we're talking about we keep saying Chinese, Chinese, Chinese. Can we talk briefly about how this is actually affecting like the everyday Chinese? So not the political leaders, not the warlords, but the everyday people on their farms or in their businesses. How are they experiencing this era of tumult and humiliation? Are they being directly affected, or something they're aware of, but they're not really struggling?
1: Uh, let me explain this. In, uh, attempt to explain this in overall generalized terms. That there's this idea of a mandate of heaven and that is that the emperor is supposed to take care of the people by making sure that those uh, that, 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 that the heavens get are balanced. Mm-hmm. So there's no floods, there's no famines, or if there are floods and famines, the people are taken care of. There's nobody to have a mandate.
2: There's no umbrella.
1: There's no umbrella. So it is horrendous. And everywhere the Chinese look, which is part of the reason for the Boxer Rebellion, there's some rich foreigner being carted around in a rickshaw
2: so they're struggling they can't feed their families there's floods there's famine and they're foreigners every day yeah
1: and every day they see this deprivation and this is the center this is this is the middle kingdom these are the people of the middle kingdom they're supposed to be taken care of by their leadership their leadership not only has abandoned them it doesn't even seem to want to
2: and this is still the same in 1919 in the 1920s
1: yeah it from the from the the before the boxer well go all the way back to the Taiping
2: mm-hmm. it,
1: it, and so there's this ferment there but this ferment goes back in China all the time but this is expanding beyond okay. and, and part of it is the population of China is now so large and the ability to grow the food needed and the opportunities for jobs and all that sort of stuff uh, I somewhere around 1905 there was a I think a, a British military officer that did a survey and wrote a book on it that basically says uh, only 5% of the Chinese people are literate and that's going to be a big deal because when Mao Zedong sends everybody to school that's huge I mean Mao Zedong is still seen as a hero in China and the average person person in China has never been better off in history than they are now mm-hmm. and because and we they have
2: that umbrella back
1: they have the umbrella back and so the party is everywhere but that ain't a bad thing for some Chinese
0: so you you brought us into kind of a, a the probably the last year of the century of humiliation with reference to the communists so by the 20s we have there are communists in China um, how does that play in with this kind of era of, of unsettled warlords
1: There's an argument that says if it hadn't been for the Japanese, the communists would have lost. And that argument is certainly plausible. Um, They are fighting each other. um, And that allows the communists to grow because the nationalists are not strong enough. So in 1927, Chiang Kai-shek finally puts together the army. And this begins in 1924 when he is selected to be the military commander by Sun Yat-sen
0: so Chang is the, the warlord that Sun Yat-sen either should have been or needs
1: yes okay and Sun Yat-sen sends Chiang Kai-shek to the Soviet Union to study and the Soviet Union puts together a a university <laughs> uh, something like the the university for studies of Toilers, Chinese Toilers of the East. It's got some great names. It's not going to make a great T-shirt, but it's a great name. Uh, and it is essentially Sun Yat-sen University, in, not unlike Patrice Lumumba University that will come up later for the African states. So, Sun, you, uh, yeah. Chiang Kai-shek was up there being told to go up there, looks around there, also looks around Germany. When he comes back, his model is a Russo-German model. And he also went to, high, he went to military high school in Japan, and the Japan model was a French-German model. So he's got models of how to being, build a strong military state, and so he will do that at the school at Wampoa, set up in 1924 under the aegis of Sun Yat-sen. There's a great picture of, of, of Chiang Kai-shek and Zhou lai who will be Mao Zedong's second, uh, running that school together, and mm-hmm. if you you go to China today, there's a museum there, and you can go down a museum, and you can go into Chang's office, and next door is Ma, is Zhou Enlai's Lai's office. So what most people don't realize is that the original Kuomintang Nationalist Party is both communist and nationalist. Mm-hmm. It's a na- it's a national socialist party um, with a left wing and a center wing, but it's certainly not a right. It, well, it depends how. Yeah, but, but Chiang Kai-shek is no Democrat mm-hmm. Sun Yat-sen has the idea That China will become a democracy But only when the people learn mm-hmm. They have to be brought along It can't just happen they, They're 95% illiterate okay,
2: You can have a mobocracy You need to educate yeah, them yeah. And have them become a democracy yeah.
1: Yes, exactly So in 1927 At what's famously known as the Shanghai Massacre um, The center part of the Kuomintang Takes off Takes against the leftist part and so the communists the communists, the first the first party congress no, no. the first meeting of the Chinese Communist Party is July of 21 by 1927 they are powerful enough that Chiang Kai-shek needs to eradicate them and so that's what he sets out to do in 1927 except they escape mm-hmm. and one of those escapees is Mao and he will go down into the hinterland of southeast China and set up the Soviets in the Jinggang Mountains and, and so,
0: this is his, as he writes about, this is his departure from um, communist and Soviet ideology, which should be in the cities. Uh, yes. The, the city part doesn't work. Right. And he, won't he work. I forget what he calls them, but they're essentially fake communists. Yeah.
1: Yes. It will grow. Now, the Komen turn will send advisors. But those initial advisors are with Chiang Kai shek.
3: Mm
1: mm-hmm. um, and, and Stalin and Chiang Kai-shek have a relationship that, that keeps on and so but Chiang Kai-shek is independent enough in, in 27 he throws the communists out of Wampoa. Wampoa has moved from Guangzhou, it's now up in Nanjing to the capital but that school is still going on but Chiang doesn't want political commissars. Chiang doesn't want this as, much, as much indoctrination if so they split but but anybody that's fight the Japanese is, is got to be a friend of, of mm-hmm. Stalin's so that's on that it is a very complicated convoluted mess right, right. but at the end of the day in the early 30s Chiang Kai-shek goes I'm gonna have to go after the communists they're just growing too strong so that will begin the five um, extermination campaigns and the first three are very unsuccessful because he's sending people that don't want to fight to people that do want to fight, and they get hammered. Um, then he finally puts together a decent army for the fourth one, and then for the fifth one, he sends down a million of his best troops, and that will produce the long march.
0: Which mm-hmm. I believe exterminated something like 90% of Mao's followers.
1: Very likely. Yeah. The, the, the wonderful thing is if you ain't killed and you're still a good communist— when you recover your wounds and you find yourself in a town somewhere, you just start recruiting. Political so, phase. Political. But in the middle of the long march at a place called Zuni, there's a conference because they're getting hammered by the nationalists. And they throw out the the advisor. Um, and I could back up a bit. Chinese communism comes from at least three, three lines. There's those... Chinese communists that were brought up in, in the Soviet Union, the 28 Bolsheviks. And then there's the Deng Xiaoping's and the Zhou Enlai's that are brought up in the European tradition. Deng Xiaoping lived in France. He also went to Russia, Zhou Enlai, France, and then Germany. So there's a European, uh, a European line, there's a Russian line, and then there's Mao and the internal line. Mm-hmm. Mao never left China until 1950, his first trip abroad. Is to the is to the Soviet Union, so when somebody says w- what is Chinese communism, well, glad you asked.
2: It's its own
0: unique yeah. creature.
1: it's a very unique creature on its own, mm-hmm. but it is essentially peasant based, not proletariat based. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, it's always an outlier for Stalin to look at the Chinese and go, "No, this can't." And so, I mean. Stalin plays both sides against the middle all the way through um, the late 40s. Mm-hmm. He
3: actually,
1: as I understand it, he actually thinks that that Mao will be defeated by Chiang. One, Chiang is supported by the United States. And, and Mao is this guy that doesn't understand communism. Mm-hmm. He's got this own peasant game he's playing, but he doesn't understand communism. And he certainly does not have much access. So then there's the whole argument, who gave... Mao his weapons after 1945, and the answer is two and a half million Japanese weapon. Uh, Japanese weapons fell into his hands thanks to uh, the Russians, and then the Russians will begin to supply them.
0: Yeah, and you're getting us at kind of both the end of this period and perhaps the peak humiliation, which is World War II. So yes. so. The Japanese start World War Two long before it starts in Europe in China. Yep. So how does that go for the Chinese, and how does that kind of resolve this?
1: Um, the the new scholarship on it, um, points to Chang doing a better job against the the Japanese than we. There's what's called, kind of called the Stillwell story that Chiang Kai-shek is this corrupt warlord and his, his armies are, are corrupt and all the officers are corrupt and, and they treat their soldiers terribly and so they get defeated 10 to 1 every time. Well, when you start to look at it, they really damaged the Japanese. Uh, they, so from, from the start in July of 37 up around Beijing to then going into Shanghai and then the famous Nanjing Massacre and then up to Wuhan, and then the bombings of Chongqing, because to get from Wuhan to Chongqing, the the river narrows, and the Japanese at the end of their supply line. Um, and so Ch- Chongqing, where Chang moves the headquarters to in 1938, never falls. But it is bombed. It is one of the most bombed cities in World War II. Um, again, this is another three-hour-long presentation. I'm trying to get into five minutes. (laughs) Um, So with that in 37 and then 37-38, what the common thought is it's a stalemate along a line. And the stories that come out of the Americans that that will watch this, to include Stilwell, who's a U.S. Army full colonel defense attache reporting back, Army attache reporting back, about how badly the Japanese are doing, uh, how badly the Chinese are doing. His statement still is the average Chinese can be turned into as good a soldier as exists on earth if they're fed well, trained well, and led well. Mm -hmm. And so that's the story.
0: Which is, uh, I think we have to admit, kind of a white savior myth.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, In my own dissertation, argues that the American advisors from uh, 1941 to 1945 significantly improve the Chinese military. And we do that by basically training and equipping and providing advisors to almost 40 divisions. The right number of divisions for Chiang Kai-shek, according to the United States, is probably 100. If they just took their over 500-plus divisions and actually made real, honest-to-God divisions that were from the 12,000 to 15,000 mm-hmm. with artillery, with, with combined arms and well-trained and well-led, uh, they had plenty of manpower to build 100 good divisions. 100 good divisions would have really beat the Japanese as the Japanese divisions are getting worse and worse as the war goes along. But my metric is, at the beginning of the war, it takes ten Chinese divisions to defeat one Japanese division. At the end of the war, it only takes two to defeat one. And we have a great responsibility in making that change happen. Um,
2: What are the communists doing at this time?
1: Hiding and building. Um, They have one major battle, the Hundred Regiments Campaign in 1940 that they take on the Japanese, and the Japanese just pound them.
3: Mm.
1: At the end of it, as many as two million Chinese civilians will die as the Japanese retaliate with the Mm kill-all, burn-all, destroy-all movement. Mm -hmm. And so that drives drives Mao and the guerrillas into the background. Mm -hmm. And they just go into, they just revert back to the organization phase, and they just build up. And then they creep south, of the Yangtze River into areas that they can mm-hmm. um, and this will cause the fourth Road Army massacre because Chiang Kai-shek tells Mao you're not you're not coming south of the Yangtze but they do the, a piece I missed 1936 the Xi'an incident Zhang Zui Liang the son of Zhang Zuolin, Lin who had been assassinated by the Japanese up in Manchuria and others Capture Chiang Kai-shek mm-hmm. So if you go to Xi'an today You can go to the little uh, Summer Not palace, but summer house And then you can see where Chiang jumped out the window And ran is up the mountain He hour. runs
2: up the mountain in his underwear Or is in his pajamas yeah.
1: and, and then if you go up there There's a rock and it's got a thing
2: One of my favorite stories of all time Chiang Kai-shek running out his house In his underwear pajamas, his underwear yeah. and getting captured
1: Yeah, That Xi'an incident So then, then it gets clouded. Then, you know, according to some, Chiang Kai-shek was told, "You will either stop fighting the communists, because after the five, after the Long March, after Sunni and the throwing out of the Soviet communists, the communists will continue up to a place called Yan'an or Yan'an, in north of Xi'an, and there they will lick their wounds." the twenty to thirty thousand that are left out of the hundred and plus thousand that had left the year, you know, the year before. And Chiang Kai shek flies to to Xi'an to meet with his generals to plan the sixth extermination campaign. And except they don't plan the sixth extermination campaign, they kidnap Chiang. And say so we're gonna stop fighting the communists, we're gonna start fighting the Japanese. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so what does Chiang Kai shek do? Well if if you listen to one line of the story the chinese communists understood that chang was the true leader of china and once he agreed to fight the japanese they willingly joined and it was like now nah, this is all political mumbo jumbo the idea was, and this idea that that Zhang zui liang told chiang kai-shek you either stop fighting the communists and start fighting the japanese or i will turn you over to mao for your execution and therefore chang you know, basically said, "Oh, of course, I'll fight the Japanese." <laughs> Narrative is any,
2: very important.
3: Yeah.
1: So there are there are narratives that come out of the Xi'an incident that are out there, but the basic is the Chinese communists and the nationalists came back together again in what's called the Second United Front and agreed to fight the Japanese mm-hmm. together. They really never did. Mm-hmm. They kept at each other.
0: So the communists have now come south. You said they crossed the Yangtze their pockets back across the south. Okay.
1: Their, their, their area is still a safe area with their back to Russia up in the north, mm-hmm. up in the n- what's north east north-central. The Chinese call it northwest. It's like we call Ohio in the northwest. Yeah, right. I got it. Not so, Montana.
0: So, n- right. Now we have, uh, you mentioned that there's kind of a revisionist school that says that Chiang actually was an effective leader and did chew up the Japanese pretty good.
1: Yes, and that all began with um, a, a, a book that was done from the release of Chiang Kai-shek's diaries. Mm. And then people started to look much more closely at those battles from Shang, from Shanghai. And then especially the battles around Changsha, um, where the Chinese chopped up uh, Japanese units. And a place called Tai Erzhuang, which is sometimes called the Sh- the Stalingrad of China. So once the Japanese got far inland to, to a line, if you just took a line north and south of Wuhan, they had a very difficult time mm-hmm. supplying their armies that far forward. And their troops are getting worse and worse all the time because the better troops have got to be moved to other theaters. Yep. And so... Uh, the whole story of how important China was to the Allied victories in World War II is is changing as we speak.
0: And this is, uh, for China, this is this is, uh, as I understand it, pretty commensurate with the Taiping Rebellion. We're talking tens of millions of dead. Yes, I, I, yes. I, again, Chi,
1: Chiang Kai-shek may have killed two million when he flooded uh, an area of China. To in an attempt to prevent the movement of Japanese forces further south, it may have held them up for a couple of weeks, but mm-hmm. was it worth the effort? Because right. like,
2: thinking about narrative and like the Chinese place in World War II like if the U.S. planning for Iwo Jima and Okinawa and preparing against the Japanese, like the Chinese bogging down the Japanese and Japanese forces played a key role in those planning operations.
1: Yep, yep, and and more and more books are being written on the different battles. Uh, and, and how many Japanese troops were actually being held down. Uh, there's a scholar uh, in Britain, Ron Emitter, that, that talks to that. Mm-hmm. But there are others that are writing the battle histories. And once you start seeing how many people the Japanese lost, mm-hmm. all of a sudden you start to relook mm-hmm. uh, this.
0: So this is our transition point, right? Now we're moving on to the, the Chinese as part of the Allies win World War II, they get their seat at the Security Council. They immediately turn around and conclude their civil war with Mao and the Communist Party's victory, which brings an end to the century of humiliation in 1949. Yep. So looking back at this period then, kind of by way of conclusion, what's the, what's the narrative coming out of that now that the, the party is in charge?
1: it initially begins with the Truman administration giving up that they, they believed Taiwan would, Hainan Island fell I think in 1948 um, it was only a matter of time until Taiwan fell and the, neither party in the United States wanted to introduce U.S. ground combat troops or even air power to China and so Truman takes a lot of heat from the Republican Party for this, and he has, in 1949, there's a big white paper that comes out that, where Truman attempts to explain why not. Um, the last advisor, the last U.S. senior advisor in China is a guy named Barr, uh, who will command the 7th ID in Korea.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And Barr writes, um, Chang cannot be saved without the introduction of U.S. combat troops. Period.
2: And people are tired after World War II
1: again um, now again the Soviet Union is so playing a role in this piece mm-hmm. it, it, so but the humiliation ends when Chiang Kai-shek stands up in Tenement Square and announces people of China stand up and at the end of the day we're the enemy because we have supported uh, Chiang Kai-shek we're the enemy and then the first mess that's going to happen after that you know the first hot war of the cold war is going to be korea
0: which <laughs> conveniently puts the chinese communist army against the united states army for the only time
1: directly for the only time yeah and and so there and and this begins the new the new era of the humiliations over we have now stood up the greatest power on earth and fought them to a standstill on the Korean Peninsula Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that you know that's probably a good argument for why Mao decided to go to war first of all Mao knew China was not the United States was not going to attempt to land war in China and that's you know that's the famous Bradley statement wrong war wrong place wrong you know wrong time wrong enemy because we keep looking at Europe we keep looking at Europe So Mao knows that sending a volunteer army into Korea is low risk. Mm -hmm.
0: And it's a wonderful pivot point into the future where you can now build your narrative around it's been bad for a century, now it's going to be good for a century.
2: Yeah, so Dr. Babb, you started with talking about the century of humiliation and how it's focusing on those external factors. As part of that narrative, how do they explain Chiang Kai-shek? Is he a villain, or do they kind of ignore those internal issues and always focus on foreign issues?
1: It's an interesting thing to say. It could change tomorrow because of of the situation in Taiwan. But the last time, I, the last two times I visited China, two thousand and six and two thousand and twelve, Chiang Kai-shek is actually being depicted as one of the heroes mm. because he fought the Japanese
2: again. External factors External are the main factors. focus.
1: So um, when you go to Chongqing, when I, first, when I went to Chongqing in 1984, I visited the U.S. War Crimes Museum. They've changed the name of that. <laughs> um, and so uh, Stillwell is fetid. There's a Stillwell Museum in Chongqing. And they've changed the name of the War Crimes Museum And Chiang Kai-shek is actually seen as uh, a Chinese patriot that fought the Japanese.
0: Yeah, this has been a fascinating discussion about the the history of narrative and and broader Chinese history. Dr. Bab, thank you. My my pleasure. If you like this episode, please make sure to check out our other podcast, Broad Gauge Gossips, where we talk to members of the Department of Military History faculty so you can get to know them.